Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus's feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Well, good morning, Covenant. Uh, only a couple of more weeks, a few more weeks, and we believe that we'll begin to, to gather back together again. It's a great time of uncertainty. Uh, we certainly have lived through some historic times in the last couple of months, uh, stock market crashes and pandemics. And I mean, we just saw this week 30 some odd million of our fellow citizens are unemployed and and, uh, and the future is still uh, very uh, uncertain and unwritten. And so we're in this series wondering, you know, will we get a cure sometime soon? What's going to be the long-term impacts on our economy and on our jobs and employment because of, of what has occurred? And then, of course, there's some wondering, when are we, how long are we going to have to keep doing this, you know, and uh, be socially distant, not gathered together? And uh, I, I can at least give some insight on that last one. I can't do anything about the stock market. I wish I could, and, but the last one I can. Um, we have formed a team of some deacons and key staff who have already begun to uh, work together, uh, getting educated with, through uh, via, uh, via uh, other organizations and ministries, both inside and outside of our denomination, as to best practices and things to consider as we uh, can look at having corporate worship again. We are planning um, to have a kind of a dry run, a, a soft opening, if you will, uh, the last Sunday of May. Uh, and so we will be, in some way, this team will come up with a way of asking certain ones of you to come on that particular Sunday. And part of the purpose is to make sure that we've dotted our I's and crossed our T's so that the next week, which will be the first Sunday in June, when we open up for public worship, uh, we have everything in place necessary to, uh, to have as, as safe of an environment as we can uh, while we gather together. And so based on, uh, if you have not yet responded to the survey that was sent out, we ask you to do so, so that we have an idea of how many are planning to stay in place until the all clear is given, uh, compared to those who are, are ready to re-engage and, and be in a social setting. So help us with that bit of information, if you would. Uh, this is the final week of this series on trusting God through uncertainty. Uh, we have seen uh, confused disciples who were filled with uncertainty and fear because of a, a literal storm, a, a storm in their life. Uh, we've seen a possessed demoniac who was filled with uncertainty and fear due to spiritual bondage. Uh, last week, it was a trembling woman 
who was filled with uncertainty and fear due to the isolation and loneliness that had come into her life due to disease. Well, this week's final story in Luke chapter 8 is one that I think most of us can relate to in one way or another. Uh, It involves family trials and the uncertainty and fear that comes through family trials. I think for most of us, we have a deep love for our families, right? Parents uh, love their children. Children love their parents. Siblings mostly love each other uh, most of the time. Uh, You know, just a couple of weeks ago, I Uh, Before walking up here, right before I walked up here to bring the message, I got a text that told me that uh, Catherine's uh, grandmother, who was 102 years old, passed away. And I know my wife's uh, heart and uh, life is filled with memories and love of of her grandmother and her grandparents. And for many of us, we find ourselves in the role of becoming parents to our parents or to our grandparents. And when you walk down that uh, trail with them at the final years of life with these uh, folks that we love so dearly, it is natural that we be filled with some uncertainty and fear and anxiety, uh, even dread that can be mixed with gratitude as you consider, as my wife has done, the life that her grandmother and the heritage that her grandmother has given her. But if there's anything, I don't think there's anything that I can think of, more fear-inducing, more uh, you know, capable of introducing anxiety and fear and dread and uncertainty in our lives uh, than when our children are threatened. You know, whether the children are still in our home under our care or they have their own families now, when our children are in danger or something threatens their future, we are filled with uncertainty and fear. That's just a normal, natural reaction. And so as we've looked at the first three messages in this series dealing with uncertainty and fear, we come to this final one, and it's one that I think most of us can either directly relate to or we can imagine, and that is this pleading father, this pleading dad whose life is now flooded with uncertainty and fear and anxiety because of his daughter and the the danger that is to her life. And so we're going to get into this story really by just focusing on the two main characters in the narrative, and that would be Jairus and Jesus. Let's start with Jairus. He's an unlikely follower of Jesus, and he's filled with anxiety and fear and uncertainty, but he ends up responding with, with great faith. You know, you think about this man, a lot is kind of known about him just simply because of the description that he's given. He is a prominent man in uh, the city and in the area, and he's kind of an unlikely follower because he's the president of the synagogue. He's the head of the synagogue, which means that he was probably wealthy. He was an elder in the community. He was uh, well-respected in the community. He was in with the Pharisees. Uh, He would have had natural good relationships with them. And he was responsible, he had a lot of responsibility when it came to worship. He's responsible for organizing the worship of the synagogue, organizing the ministries and the the responses of the synagogue to the needs of the community. And so he's very well respected, he's very well off, and uh, he has a great amount of responsibility. And those types of men in the ministry of Jesus didn't typically follow him, didn't typically come to him, especially in in such a a bold, desperate way. And here we see him in the story. Jesus has come back across the lake uh, or the Sea of Galilee from uh, dealing with the demoniac and that, that narrative that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And when he lands on the shore, 
coming to meet him is Jairus, and he's desperate, and he pleads with him, and you can understand why. He has a 12-year-old daughter. We don't know if this is his only child, but we know that this is his only daughter, and if he had other children, you know, maybe she was his pet, you know, that, that one daughter, and he loved her deeply and desperately, and she's sick, very sick with a fever. This is an urgent, life-threatening situation, and what you see is this man, Jairus, this well-respected man, fall at the feet of Jesus and plead with him to come and heal his daughter. And in doing so in such a way, it says a lot about him. In fact, if you look at the Mark account, uh, it gives us a little more insight into what was said and how it was done. Jairus comes, he sees him, he fell at his feet. I mean, this is all action that is totally opposite of someone of his station in life in this culture at that time. And he implores Jesus earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Do you hear those words of certainty and faith? So he's, he's trusting in Jesus. He has faith and he believes. We don't know if it was saving faith, but at least there was some great degree of confidence and faith in this man towards Jesus and his ability to heal his daughter. But right on the heels of this proclamation of faith comes a test. Jesus begins to make the journey from the shore to this man's home, and along the way, he gets interrupted with the woman that we looked at last week, the woman who kind of, you know, subtly works her way through the crowd and then reaches out and, and, and almost like a superstitious form of faith touches the tassels or the hem of Jesus's robe. And she's healed of this chronic disease that she's had for 12 years and had been devastating her life. And what we need to see in all this, and as we talked about last week, you know, Jesus didn't just, you know, go on his merry way. He stopped and Apparently, he interrogated the crowd. He was asking people, you know, did you touch me? Did you touch me? Did you touch me? And he works his way around until finally, you know, this woman, she steps forward and she falls at his feet and, and interacts with him. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. I want you to put yourself in Jairus' shoes for a moment. Let's put it in a modern setting. Um, what would be going through your head if if you take a loved one, you know, your child, your spouse to the emergency room, and, and maybe they've had a heart attack. Maybe they're, I mean, they are, they are on the verge of death, right? And so you run into the emergency room and you shout for a doctor and I need help out here. And the doctor comes out and he starts making his way for me. You say, my, my spouse is having, our, my, my loved one is, you know, and he goes, okay, okay. And he starts to make his way out the door to your child. And then he notices someone else sitting over here on the chair. And he stops for a minute and he goes over there and says, Hey, what are you here for? Well, doctor, my gout is really acting up. You know, I've had gout for 15 years and it gets so painful. I need help with this. And the doctor says, oh, really? Well, here, let me listen to you. And then he puts the stent, he starts to breathe and he starts to talk and goes, you know, does it hurt when I press here? Hey, why don't we come back to the back? I've got some medicine for this. Let's hook you. Nurse, can we hook this one up to an IV? And he goes through and he treats this person with gout, a chronic disease. Meanwhile, your loved one's out here, you know, redlining because they have this urgent, life-threatening situation. I mean, if that happened to you, what would be going through your head, right? I mean, I know what would be going through my head, especially if, you know, my loved one, Morgan and Morgan, right? We're, we're talking, this is medical malpractice. You, you, this is negligent. 
You're, you're placing a priority on someone who, let's be honest, could have waited. I mean, they've suffered with this for 12 years. Or, I mean, you could have, I mean, yes, yeah, she's healed. Why not just say, hey, lady, um, I've got something really important to do right now. Why don't you walk with us? Because I want to talk to you later. Okay, so come with us and, and continue to make your way. But no, Jesus stops. And by all accounts and by you know, what most scholars seem to think is he, he may have delayed for one to two hours dealing with this woman and the crowd, interrogating that whole scene. Plus, you have a throng of people, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people are around Jesus. So it's not like he's sprinting through the town. Jewish men didn't run anyway back in that day. You know, so just making your way through the crowd would have been time-consuming. And here's Jairus, and his daughter's in danger. And he's professed his faith, and Jesus has said, sure, I'll come, and I'll heal. And, and then he stops. He delays. I mean, this looks negligent. At the very least, it looks unfair, right? I mean, the woman was secretive in her faith. I mean, her faith is, in all honesty, it's, it's almost superstitious. You know, I'm going to just touch his tassel, and maybe that'll heal me, you know? And we understand why, because she'd been disappointed so many times through the years, but she's secretive, and she's a little superstitious, and her faith, her faith is, it's, honestly, it's weak. We talked about that last week. And it's not the strength of our faith, it's the object of our faith. But nevertheless, you have Jairus in comparison. He's bold. He's open, right? He, I mean, he's, he's taking a stand. He's doing something that's going to cost him reputation in the community. And yet, Jesus delays, and he stops, and he prioritizes this woman. Have you ever been in a, in a situation where you pour out your heart to the Lord believing that a certain outcome needed to happen and it needed to happen right then and it doesn't happen at all as you envision it and it doesn't happen the when you want it to happen or the way you want it to happen that kind of a situation that's a real trial of faith it can create bitterness it can create anger disillusionment with the lord over a delay like this so this is jairus and then we have Jesus, right? Jesus is the one in this narrative who gives life, and he demonstrates to us that he alone is life. This passage is an awesome this story. I love this story because it paints such a beautiful portrait of Jesus as we see him interacting with Jairus and, and with the family in the crowd. We see Jesus you know, filled with pity and sensitivity for the grieving you look at verse 50, the scriptures tell us that uh, Jesus, on hearing uh, this message, the message that, hey, too late, don't bother the teacher anymore, your daughter has died, she's dead. And Jesus, on hearing this, answered, saying, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. Do you see what that says about, about Jesus? And how he's sensitive to the situation. His heart is filled with compassion and pity towards him. He, he immediately responds to the negative news, the bad news, with an affirming message to the dad saying, no, don't be afraid. And then one of the things I particularly appreciate is how Jesus avoids the spotlight. I mean, let, let's face it, in today's world where we have many, maybe on television and, and whatnot, claiming to do these miraculous types of things, 
they don't hide from this. They, you know, it's front and center. It's on the stage, and, and, and there's a desire for it to be seen. Jesus, he stops the crowd from coming into the house. He understands this father, this mother, have gotten the worst news a parent can get. Their child is dead. This is not the time to, to, to claim the spotlight, to have all the attention shining on you. He refuses to self-promote. He refuses to make it about himself at a time that is a deeply personal and painful situation. And so that tells us a lot about Jesus. It tells us a lot that he walks in to this home, right? Verse 52 says there's this crowd, there's, there's people weeping and mourning. And he says, don't weep for she's not dead, but she's sleeping. And they laughed at him. Literally, they mock him. They der- they're filled with derision towards him, knowing that she was dead. You see, what's going on here is in the ancient world, the Jewish world, death had a professional response. There were professional mourners. Um, you know, we have morticians and people who embalm bodies. They, they had professional mourners. And, uh, you know, a wel- the wealthier you were as death is approaching, the more it was expected for you to have a, a larger number of people. A poor person might have one person mourning and wailing and shrieking, and it was quite the show, right? But it, the wealthier you were, the more of these you would have by custom. And so the idea here is that there were people who are, who are in the home because they know death is approaching or it's now occurred and they are there. And this is the first responses of the funeral process. And now you have your professional mourners and they shriek and they cry and they throw ashes in the ground and they tear their clothes and they carry on. So it's chaotic, Right. But they're also professionals. They know death, like a mortician knows death. The girl is dead, right? She's gone. And so when Jesus says this, they mock him. They make fun of him. And yet, I love how Jesus responds. He doesn't. He doesn't rise to their baiting. He doesn't rise to their derision and their sarcasm and their mockery. Instead, he simply handles the situation with just absolute class and poise, right? He doesn't, he doesn't get into a tit for tat. Uh, you know, there's something, this is a good point for us to just kind of just touch on. Christian, there is something incredibly appealing to our world when Christians respond to mockery and laughter and derision with winsomeness and with poise and class and don't engage, you know, you know, Jesus didn't pull out his, his smartphone and start twittering. I'm about to show these guys. They don't know who they're messing with, you know, or that kind of junk and that kind of language. Instead, he's just calm and gent- a Christian type of gentleman. And then you see this personal touch in verse 54. You know, he takes her by the hand and he says to her, child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And so here's Jesus filled with pity and poise, and yet there's this personal touch throughout this story that just demonstrates his compassion and his humanity that, that characterizes him. You know, as a child, um, I, there were two ways that I was woken up from sleep. There was my dad's way, which was like a drill sergeant, right? He'd walk in, he'd flip on the lights, time to get up, you know, that kind of thing, get up, get up. You know, my brother, who was older than me, uh, especially in his teen years, his junior, senior year, and high, eight years difference, he could sleep through it all. You know, I, I'm peeling myself off the ceiling, but my brother would sleep through it all. So my dad would go get up in a thing of water, and he would throw it on him and wake him up. You know, so my brother was always sleeping in a somewhat damp bed because he would get water thrown on him on a regular basis. To get, that was my dad, right? 
But then there was my mom. I loved as a child being woken up by my mom because, you know, I'd be sleeping. And at some point, you know, I would feel this hand, you know, caressing my cheek and my brow. And then I would hear this. It's time to get up. It's time to get up. It's time to get up in the morning, right? She'd sing to me. She would bring me awake through this, this tender touching and singing, very different from my dad. And you can tell which one I, I definitely appreciate. I mean, here I am. It's probably been 50 years since I've heard that song, and I can still remember that. And I want you to kind of think about that and that picture, because that's what you have here with Jesus. Now, Jesus goes in to this little girl with, with the parents, and there's this incredible tenderness there. It's, the language here is Aramaic, and he uses a word, talitha, which means like little lamb. Essentially, what he says to her is he takes her hands and he says, little lamb, it's time to get up. It's time to get up. It's time to wake up. Uh, or in our, in our Southern diet, he said, honey, it's time to wake up now. That's what he does. And she comes to life. And then you think about it. He, 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 he says, hey, you know what? She's hungry. Just had fever. Let's get her some food. And then he keeps the crowds away and, all the, and, he, and he gives her back to her parents so that they can have a private moment with her so that they can enjoy their daughter. And he even says, hey, don't tell them what all has happened in here. This is about you. This is about your daughter and your relationship with her. You know, Jesus's MO is to take fearful people and respond to them with love and grace and realize that people are precious. They're not a project meant to, to further one's own ambitions and one's own desires. The people are the point. They're not a publicity stunt. And then on top of all of this, of course, we can't ignore the fact that in addition to this personal touch, there's power, right? In verse 56, we read that her parents were amazed. Why were they amazed? Because with the spoken word, Jesus had raised somebody from the dead. Only God can do that. Only God has that kind of power, and they're astonished. That word astonished, in other words, they, they worship. You think Jairus' faith was uh, you know, established with Jesus. How much stronger is it now? Because he's experienced this very real interaction of God's power. Jesus has this power. With the spoken word, he can calm a storm. With the spoken word, he can cast out legions of spiritual forces that destroy lives and and, and possess with the spoken word, he can defeat the greatest enemy that humanity has, which is death. It's a consequence of sin. And that's part of the point of this whole uh, series of stories is to show us that Jesus has this power. And the reason why he has this power is because he is God in the flesh. And it begs the question, What's stopping you from trusting in him, from believing in him, committing your life to him? You know, as I ask that question to people, it's interesting the responses I get. Many times it's, you know, some kind of an intellectual objection and, and maybe some types of multifaceted arguments for one reason or another. But may I support or, or put before you that at the core of every objection is what was happening with Jairus, fear. And Jesus responds to Jesus, or Jairus, Jesus responds, Jesus responds to Jairus in a particular way. He doesn't say, have stronger faith. There's, he says, trust in me, do not be afraid. You see, the opposite of faith 
is not necessarily doubt. It's fear. It's cowardice. Why are you not trusting in Christ? Because there's fear there that if you give up control, there's fear there that your life is now going to belong to someone else. There's fear that you will not be able to live life the way you want to live life. Because if you submit to the Lord, you're submitting to God. And he has first dibs. So Jesus is filled with power, yet his power isn't impersonal. It's not unkind. It's not dictatorial and malevolent. It's this power that comes with this personal touch of grace and compassion. Well, so what? Right? I mean, how does this relate to us this morning? I think when you look at these stories, especially these last two stories, right? These last two stories are interconnected. And they're really communicating something to us that is extremely important. That, that Jesus is this, pat, this, this compassionate, all-powerful giver of life. And as such, he calls on us to focus upon him, to trust in him, to trust his timing, to trust his grace, to trust his love for us. And there's, a, there's an aspect of this story and how these two stories are connected. I, I, ref, I touched on it a few moments ago, but we need to camp on it for a few minutes because it's profound when we think about why does Jesus wait? Why does Jesus delay like this? Why does Jesus, you know, in modern terms, you know, flirt with medical malpractice? Why does he deal with the woman at the expense of Jairus and his daughter, right? Why does he do this and delay so that Jairus and the mother experience such deep emotional pain? Why does he do this? And the messenger comes up and he says, it's too late, don't bother to teach her anymore, she's dead. And Jesus is like, no, oh, 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 wait a minute, what, wait, wait, just stop for a minute. Trust me, Jairus. Trust me, Christian. I'm right on time. Everything is gonna be fine. But it sure doesn't feel that way. You know, one of the things that this story is teaching us, one of the things I know I've learned in my own Christian journey is that, you know, um, and I've learned it the hard way, <laughs> and I continue to learn it, is that God's grace is never given to me or to any of us on our time schedules. God does not consult our daytimers or our outlook calendars or whatever form of, of organization you use and give his grace and pour it into our lives built around what we have going on. In fact, if I look at my life, I can honestly say, rarely have I seen the Lord answer my prayers at the time when I want them answered, and I rarely ever see him answer them in exactly the way that I want them answered. And even if he answers them in the way I want them, he doesn't do it when I want it. And it can be extremely frustrating, right? Have you ever experienced this? Where you pray and you pour your heart out and you're convinced, you're certain, this is what needs to happen for everything to be great, for God to be glorified if this would happen. And it doesn't happen. Okay, it's, it's very frustrating. Why does that happen? Why does Jesus operate? Well, I, you know, I don't know about you, but I know for me, one of the things it's done is it reveals my heart. It reveals whether we are trusting in him or ourselves, 
Are we trusting in Jesus or are we trusting in a false image of Jesus? It reveals whether we're following him for who he is and what he's about and what he's doing in this world or whether we're following him for what we are about and what we want him to do for us in this world. The delays, the prayers answered in a way that we do not wish our watershed moments in our Christian lives. I, I've been following Christ as a Christian now for almost 50 years. And as I look back on my life and the decades, I can tell you that these delays, these prayers not answered in the way I anticipated, expected, or even wanted, that these types of times in my life, they're watershed moments. And the reason why they're watershed moments is because they are this incredible manifestation of God's wisdom and grace towards us. And you see this in the story. You see the wisdom of our Lord in this story, and it comes through the delay. You see, Jesus knew something that Jairus didn't know. Jesus knew that he needed to deal with this woman first. Think about it. She's healed. She touches in this kind of superstitious form of faith, and she does it secretively. She wants to slink away because she's unclean and ostracized within the community. And Jesus doesn't let that happen. He understands something, that she could not wait. She'd been physically healed, but she had not been restored. She had not been spiritually, emotionally, and socially restored in any way. And so at that moment in time, he knew something Jairus didn't know, that the woman was a greater priority than Jairus and his daughter. He knew this. And why would he think this? Because Jesus was not worried about Jairus' daughter. Death posed no more an obstacle to him than the fever did. So when he got there, didn't matter. He knows this because he can take care of whatever it is, fever or death, all within the realm of Jesus' power. And so church, when our Lord delays, or when our Lord answers our prayers in a way that we don't anticipate or we don't want, trust that he knows something that we don't know. He's the omniscient God. I mean, think about how arrogant it is. And, and guys, I'm preaching to myself here because I have, I have camped here, lived here for good chunks of my life to get angry and bitter at God for not answering my needs according to my schedule and according to my expectations. The, I, when, when it dawned on me that essentially what I was saying to God was that I know what's best for me. Right? I know what needs to happen here because, you know, I've got it figured out, God. I've got the factors in play. I've got a plan that will address this thing. Now, now, Lord, I know that you're omniscient and you can see from beginning to end, from eternity past to eternity future, everything that can come I know that you're omniscient, but this is Jerry that you're talking to and I've got it figured out. <laughs> and this is what you need to do. Just like this right now. How absolutely arrogant is it to, to get bitter and angry at God when he doesn't go along with what we think it needs to be. Instead, what it is, is it's a manifestation of his wisdom 
He knows something that we know. It's a manifestation of his grace. Grace is all in this story. Jesus stops, right? And he gives all of his attention to the least person. Not the person who is greater, Jairus, to the least, the lesser person, this woman. He gives his attention in all of his ministry and focus to the unclean, despised, despicable woman in the society, not to the upstanding, well-respected person. Jesus doesn't kowtow to the greatest person. He focuses and he loves and he ministers on the lesser. But in this delay, Jairus' desperation becomes a channel for Jesus to pour his saving grace out upon another person. And so right this morning, if you find yourself in a time of uncertainty and delay, and you've been praying and you've been asking the Lord, and it doesn't seem to be getting answered the way you want it answered or the way you think it should be answered, or you're growing desperate because of the situation that you're in, stop and think for just a moment that the Lord knows more than you know, and it's very possible that through your sense of desperation and need, he plans to channel his grace for somebody else's benefit. And at the same time, he's going to give you the grace that you need. He does this for Jairus, right? Yeah, there's a delay. But think about the grace that the Lord gave Jairus. He stopped and he showed him once again his power in a miraculous way. He's asking for his daughter to be whole. Stop. I'm going to heal somebody who's been sick for 12 years with a chronic disease. I can take care of your fever, Right? And then when the news comes, he, he gives him even more grace. He, I, I think he looked Jairus deep in the eyes and with a lot of compassion and tenderness just said, Jairus, trust me. Don't be afraid, dude. Or whatever the Hebrew version of dude was. Don't be afraid. I've got this. Trust me. And I, I got to think that when Jesus said that to Jairus, there was this, this maybe a flood of relief, of hope, and church, do you understand that if you're in delay right now, Jesus says the same thing to you? He says, no, do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Dude, I've got this. Gal, I've got this. He gives us our grace. In the delay, Jesus' grace is everywhere. In the delays of our prayers and prayers being answered in a way that we don't want and in those kinds of circumstances, Jesus is pouring his grace out upon us because what he's doing in one respect is exposing the faults in our faith. As I look at my life, I can see where those watershed moments were times where Jesus was unmasking the idolatries of my heart. And those watershed moments when I seek to control and I want things to work out a particular way at a particular time, what it's revealing is the condition of my heart, that root of self-lordship, that root of self-reliance, that, that idolatry of self-righteousness. These things get ripped away and revealed. The delay reveals these idolatries. It reveals the deep-seated self-reliances and self-lordship and self-righteousness that needs to be rooted out, that needs to be identified, that needs to be repented of so that we can be more conformed to the image of Christ. So these delays are filled with the grace of our Lord. Seekers, 
This morning, Jesus says, focus on me. Trust in me and I will give you life. I am the way, the truth and the life. We prayed it earlier this morning. These are the words of Jesus to you. Parents, you know, you, you, you look at a story like this and we understand this fear and uncertainty and anxiety. And, and Jesus is again speaking to us. He's saying, parents, focus on me. Trust in me. I will give your children life. Life is not going to come through the parenting philosophy you've adopted or the educational approach that you've adopted or the ministries of covenant church. Parents, life comes to your children when you bring them Jesus. When we realize that our children are born dead and their trespasses and sins and what they need more as important as education and advantages and all the things that we try to give and want to give our kids as important and they have their place, those things are fundamental need is for us to bring Jesus to them so they can be touched by him and have this need addressed. Finally, church, Jesus is saying to us this morning, focus on me. Trust me. I will give you life. I will see you through trials and accusations. I will see you through, I was thinking about our ministry year. What a surreal ministry year this has been, going all the way back to the fall. When you think about all the things that we've been through as a church, and God has shepherded us through it all. And he's saying, Covenant Church, focus on me. I'll see you through crazy employment situations. I'll see you through scandals. I'll see you through trials and tribulations. I'll see you through the loss and death of dearly loved members. I'll see you through pandemic. I'll see you through economic collapse. I'll see you through it all. Focus on me. Trust me. I will give you eternal life. Lord Jesus, help us to trust you. Help us to set our eyes upon you, the author and finisher of our faith. You despised the cross for our benefit. You endured it. You took upon yourself the penalty of our sin so that we could have life. Lord Jesus, just as you purchased our redemption, I ask you to give us the grace we need to keep our eyes focused upon you. May we trust you. May we trust in your love, in your grace, and your power. May we trust in who you are, that what you are about is good for the kingdom and for our own maturation and development as Christians. Father, Give us the faith we need. And for the one who does not yet know Christ, who's seeking answers, I pray that you would open their heart to Jesus so that they would see that indeed he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no man can come to you except through him. In his name we pray, amen.